Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. So let me get down, as I can, if I can, to what we're all here for, and that is um, what happens the day after the Bar Kokhba rebellion and the, the aftermath of all that, uh, which, as you know, is a, a collapse in blood. And uh, we don't know enough about it. I got tired of saying that from the last, uh, you know, lecture I gave. But it's the truth. And sometimes the truth is frustrating. It's the truth. We know what we know. And, and, I, and that's assuming that all the sources we have are kind of accurate. There's no way of, of telling. It's 2,000 years. There's no YouTube. Um, now, this much we can put together. During the last years of the life of the Emperor Hadrian, uh, and the rebellion ends in 135, he dies in 138. So another three years on the throne. Uh, Hadrian, all of the biographers tell us, was unpopular and he was ill. Okay? Uh, he didn't have a last happy uh, three years. Good for him. Now, uh, it seems, look, you know, you're talking about descriptions written long, long ago. It seems the way to describe it, I think he has some kind of a cancer. And the reason I say it is because the ancient chroniclers tell us that many times he tried to kill himself and put himself out of misery and his friends stopped him. And that sounds like some kind of very painful sort of illness, right? So I don't know, maybe it was some kind of migraine. We don't know, but it was something really bad. Uh, couldn't happen to a nicer guy. But the, 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 the fact is that he went through a, a, a lot of pain in, in the last years. And perhaps this affected it, perhaps it didn't. But we're told, once again, that in the last years he became very tyrannical. Uh, he wasn't the sort of normal guy, as you define normal, uh, that he'd been before him were very rational running around the empire trying to fix things up all the time and so forth and in the last couple of years especially the last year of his life he starts doing a, a Caligula, a Nero he starts ordering the deaths of many around him including many senators um, and so by the time he dies in 138 uh, there's applause which was stopped in the middle by his designated successor Antoninus who for that reason is called Antoninus the Pious Right, Antoninus Pius. Right? And the reason Antoninus Pius goes, of course, he tells the Senate, uh, do not speak ill of the dead. De mortuus non si bonum. Right? You all learned that in high school if you're a certain age. And, um, uh, and this became the, the policy of his successor. Um, now, it seems, this, you're getting my, I won't say intuition, but my hunch based on putting a lot of things together many years. I think that Hadrian at the end of his life, one of the things about him was he, he was criticized a lot. And he didn't, couldn't take it. It's very hard for a dictator, because every Roman emperor is a dictator, to take criticism, except a little bit. <laughs> you know? They can say, you did a little here, a little there. We, everybody can handle that. Uh, or let's put it this way. If you're not a Nero, you can handle that. Uh, fix your tie, you know. But uh, maybe you're a little too hasty appointing this guy to be a governor in some place. But when they started criticizing you and big policies, that's uh, considered very tough, and I don't think he could take it, and I think that one of the things he probably began, began to be criticized about, thank you, was his un-Roman policy, un-Roman Jewish policy, uh, of going after Judaism, which I told you 
really was sort of like against the rules of, of long-standing, wise, experience gains, imperial Roman policy. Here's the Roman Empire in the time of Hadrian. There's Dacia, uh, Romania, which, uh, what do you call it, Trajan had conquered. Um, it's a big area. Now, how does one rule this whole area? It ain't easy. Uh, by that I mean, it's all kinds of different peoples. No, listen to what I'm about to tell you. There's all kinds of different peoples. Here the Greeks, here the Gauls, here the Spaniards, you know, all so forth. Uh, how, do you, how do you run that? You've got to have some kind of a chachma to it. You can't completely dominate and crush everybody all the time. Because it costs too much money. You can't afford it. You'll bankrupt the state. You follow? It's got to be, from pure selfish reasons, some way you make it that the army only has to be over here, protecting against the invaders, right? But the army doesn't have to be here all the time, stopping revolutions or revolts by desperate people. Now, if you follow a harsh policy, okay, you can provoke revolts at the drop of a hat. It's the easiest thing in the world. You know what I'm saying? Uh, go uh, to the Jews and put up a, a, a pagan temple uh, uh, in Jerusalem. Uh, you know, go to the Greeks and, I don't know, spit on Zeus. You see? Go, 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 go uh, you know, to the Parthians and do whatever. You, you get what I'm saying? Like today, we would say like this. Go tear up uh, a Koran in, in, in the middle of uh, Istanbul. You know, there, there's, there's ways of doing it. But it costs a lot of money. And even if you're successful in putting it down, was it a wise use of policies? If you were the CEO of the Roman Empire, and remember, this lasted for many centuries. If you're the CEO of an empire, you've got to develop policies over the course of time through conservative wisdom that involve granting the subject peoples a certain amount of space. You have to very narrowly define what it is that you want. You want political control, you want taxes, I understand that. You want economic uh, zone. You know, it's all one empire. All that makes sense. What do you care if these people, you know, burn their wives at the funeral and these people eat their, uh, you know, grandchildren? Whatever. That's their business. <laughs> you get what I'm saying? It's their business. And so my point is the following. The revolt, as I showed you, emerged from the Roman sources, tell us this, not even the Jewish sources. The, ro the revolt of Bar Kocha, which was a biggie, revolted... Uh, excuse me, resulted from the fact that Hadrian, with no necessity whatsoever, decided to dump on the Jewish religion. What the heck is this business of prohibiting circumcision? What do you care? Why do you have to go to Jerusalem and dock at that place, knock everything down, and build a temple to, to, to Jupiter? I mean, what's that all about? You see? It, it was not necessary. And the result was, naturally, you stirred up a hornet's nest, the Jews went nuts, and it's, but we can see again from the Roman sources, they killed a heck of a lot of Romans and shook the empire to its foundations. So yeah, the, the Romans won in the end. Cost a lot of money, cost a lot of men, and for what? It's an unnecessary war. Do you, you follow what I'm saying? The early Roman emperors, is very famous, like Augustus and Tiberius, who was nuts, but not as an emperor. He, you know, he was nuts behind the scenes. He says that these emperors, is a famous story. When they were uh, the rulers of Judea, they gave orders, and I'm talking about in the first century, you know, in the year 5, 10, 20, 30, 50, 60, they gave orders that the Roman legions, when they're occupying Judea, um, should sheathe the eagles, uh, cover up all the pagan symbols. Pontius Pilate, is a famous story, in Josephus. Pontius Pilate, who's so famous or notorious from the New Testament, was a Roman governor of 
Didiyah, very anti-Semitic, extremely so, and one time sought to provoke a riot, and he brought into Jerusalem, we're told, two shields on which he painted, had painted the pictures, the portraits of Castor and Pollux, the two sons of Tiberius. And the Jews all went crazy, and he saw oh, it's a revolt, you're trying to suppress this, and the Jews said, you know, it's not a revolt, but what are you uh, violating the rules of Jerusalem? This is when the base of Mesa was still there, and it was a whole scene, he said, I'll kill you all, and they, and they bared their necks and then kill us, but everybody will know it's just a murder on your part, who's not really trying to revolt against Rome, it's something you're provoking unnecessarily. And the bottom line is somebody got uh, the word to Tiberius, uh, who was partying as always right there in Capri, right, right near Naples, and doing his favorite activity, which is pushing little girls off a cliff. Uh, if you go there today, they show you this. And nevertheless, as I say before, that was Tiberius behind the scenes. But as emperor, as soon as he got a message that there's a whole revolt brewing in Judea because the governor, Pontius Pilate, wanted to bring in the two shields, he fired him. It's very famous. How do I know it's famous? It's Philo has this in the letter to a, from Agrippa to Caligula a few years after this happened. I Meaning it's a well-known document. It's not from the Gemara or anything I'm telling you. And does that mean Tiberius was a Jew lover? No, the opposite. Was Augustus a Jew lover? No, the opposite. But they were intelligent CEOs. And so people were saying to Hadrian, I'm sure, and last year was like, what was this all about? Why did you get involved in the Vietnam War? It was not necessary. You see? What, 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 what did you do that for? And he, of course, knew that what we're saying is absolutely true. And this is probably why he dug his heels in more. This might be the reason why he insisted on killing all the rabbis he could get his hands on and all this sort of thing. And as I say, within three years, he went down the tubes and nobody missed him. Um, but the poisoned situation, therefore, is relieved with the death of Hadrian. Um, his adopted successor, and Hadrian had no, no sons, uh, Nerva had no sons, Trajan had no sons, Hadrian has no sons. Antoninus, the next one, has no sons. That's what I called the four good emperors. Marcus Aurelius had a son. That's when it went bad. There's a lesson in that. But anyway, the point is that uh, Hadrian, having no sons, adopted... First of all, he adopted this guy who died, and he adopted that guy who died. But by the time the story's over, he adopted what you would call today um, Senate Majority Leader. Which was a smart idea, right? Senate Majority Leader. Kosovo, important, high-class politician who... Uh, had good standing with all the power brokers and things like that. Somebody would be very comfortable with as the emperor, this guy Antoninus, and uh, who was a Roman aristocrat and so forth and so on, a very balanced type of individual, and uh, therefore it was a seamless succession. When Hadrian died, Antoninus the pious said, let's not speak bad of Hadrian, let's all look at the good that he did. You know, remember Mark, uh, who was it in, Jul in the play Julius Caesar, uh, you know, Mark Antony and so forth, and that is what happened. And so the result was that you've got for the next 20-some years, from 138 to 161, so it's almost, almost 25 years, a normal guy on the throne. Uh, the Emperor Antonine is pious. Uh, you can even tell his wife was very classy. Uh, these are two high-class Roman aristocrats. And by the way, she really was classy. Not only was she, you can even tell from the, from, from the statue, not only was she a real aristocrat, but she was very charitable. This is unusual in the Roman empresses. She spent time taking care of the poor in the hospitals, and that sort of Eleanor Roosevelt type. Which is, which is rare among your Roman empresses, okay? It's not too common. And um, the result is that um, they had a very normal Roman kind of uh, uh, relationship and kind of imperial uh, rule in the best sense. And Antoninus is described in the Roman sources as uh, easing up on the harsh policies that Hadrian in general had imposed in Rome 
See, he, he promised he wouldn't kill any senators, and believe it or not, he never did. It's unusual. Uh, and in the provinces as well. And once again, all that means is he was back to normal CEO. Right? And tonight he's never left Rome. He was one of these guys that said, I can run the, from the show from over here, provided the policies that are being implemented are intelligent, which is true. And therefore, you need a certain amount of moderation in order to conciliate the various races and provinces that comprise the empire to enable me to spend the money that I have to spend on defense stuff where we need it, which is on the border to keep the barbarians out and not to have to suppress local, local issues. So it's kind of interesting that he had that over there. Um, so he had these policy grounds. He was a mellow fellow, as they say. And uh, really, it's interesting. Uh, Antonius Pius is the most boring of the Roman emperors, which is good. No, in other words, the biographers don't say too much about him, which is good, which means he wasn't crazy. I mean, if you are a, looking for a movie, you want Caligula, you know. But if you... <laughs> right? But, if, but, but on the other hand, uh, Antonius was there for 23 years and uh, ran everything in a very smooth kind of a way. He was really was one of the most normal emperors, conservative in the best sense of the term. You know, as I say before, following the tried and true policies that have put Rome on the map in the first place. And therefore, based on these traditional policies, Antoninus Pius eases up on the Jews, and that's what we're interested in. And so with his accession to the throne, as far as we can tell, the persecution of the sages stops, the prohibition on teaching Torah stops. You see? But on the other hand, he doesn't ease up on Ilia Capitolina, and that's a very Roman kind of balance. In other words, I don't want to let the Jews back in Jerusalem, simply because, I'm sure, the, uh, we all know that with the Judaism, there's no separation of church and state. And if we give them back to Jerusalem, who knows what the heck will happen. Maybe they'll try to set up an independent state again and try to re rebuild the base of Migdash. So this will, this will become the Roman status quo. Uh, you can practice your religion. Uh, we're told, and Antoninus uh, said, issued a decree, that so I guess, the Jews can go back to circumcising provided they do not proselytize. It's very interesting. Seems like that might have been the reason that ticked off Hadrian or these type of guys in the first place, that they saw the circumcision practice not even so much barbaric, which maybe it was, but no more barbaric than some of these other things going on in the Roman Empire. Um, I mean, give me a break. The guys with the gladiators are worried. But anyway, the point, you know, th think about that. You know, I'm shocked that there's barbarism going on. But, the, uh, but, but they, it, it became to them that symbol of the marker of separation. And so these Jews are going after non-Jews and then circumcised, and then they're, they're really, so to speak, separating themselves from the families and all the rest of it. And so he basically says, I guess, no more of that. But Jew on Jew, you do your own thing, which is a very Roman kind of attitude. Uh, so politically, we give you nothing. But religiously, we give you everything. And that's the old-fashioned Roman way. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it, 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 it's there. And because of what I just described, because with the accession of Antoninus Pius, uh, who's a famous Roman emperor, uh, things eased up for the Jews. Therefore, Antoninus enters rabbinic literature as the iconic figure of the good Roman, just as Hadrian enters the rabbinic literature as the opposite. To this day, when you read a Gemara or you read a Medrash, they always say, Kishigia Adrianus, Shrikatomos, when Hadrian made his bones rot, said this and this and this. This is how we still talk about him. Right? We Jews have a long memory. Uh, and when it comes to Antoninus or Antoninus Pius, uh, he's always considered a tzaddik. And the friend of Rebbe, Rehud Anasi, and not only that, um, 
he was a disciple with the stories in the Gemara and in the Midrashic literature. His disciple, Rabbi Hiranasi, consults him for uh, advice and he asked some political questions. They had many philosophical questions over there. You know, how does the body and the soul, when you die, which one gets judged first and things like this. And, you know, really basic philosophy questions are discussed always there between Rebbe, Rabbi Hiranasi, the rabbi, and Antoninus. Uh, the other thing, and the, and the friend, there's even places in the Gemara where they debate the question of whether he converted to Judaism or not, whether they're gay or whether he wore tefillin. It's quite amazing. Um, now, the problem is, it doesn't work out. Okay? It's, it's a very, very well-known uh, theme in the Talmudic literature. Um, let's look at a couple of facts. hate to spoil the thing, a couple of facts. Uh, and we don't have that many facts to go with, but I'm going to show you what's out there. The Gemara tells us, it's very famous, the Rabbi Huda Nasi, who will later on become the head rabbi, the Nasi, uh, was born in the day Rabbi Kiva died. So that would put it to year 135 or so. And Tanaimus becomes the emperor three years later, and was there for 23 years. Which means that he, Rabbi Huda Nasi, was uh, 25 or something like that uh, when the emperor died. We also know, this is very famous, Antoninus never left Rome. He had an estate nearby. You see, he was a classy guy. His wife ran a classy operation. They really did. They had a high-level court, the right amount of partying, the right amount of philosophizing, the right amount of this. Everything was very balanced and mellow. And uh, he didn't need to go anywhere in provinces. So where did he meet Rabbi Huda Nasi? You see? Let alone that there are many stories in the Gemara that he had tunnels from his house, Rabbi Huda Nasi's house, back and forth in Caesarea. You know, how, how does this go? You know, it does, uh, where would it work? There are problems with this. There are... Uh, if you want to get down to it, there are a few tales in the Gemara which do date to the time of Antoninus Pius, as far as I can tell. Um, one is extremely interesting, and that's the story of the Roman noblewoman, the Matrona, where the Jews are being persecuted and, the, and nothing worked. It finally went to a Roman noblewoman who apparently was sympathetic to Judaism. And you had those types, didn't you? We saw that. And they say, give us some advice what to do. And she said, appeal to their human side and uh, make a, demonstra- a peaceful demonstration, and each of mine, woe, t- we, we proclaim to heaven, aren't we human beings too? Why are you treating us in a subhuman fashion? All the rest of it. It's very, very interesting, and uh, it kind of worked. So, uh, was this the way the... I mean, how do we decode this? Who was this woman? I mean, I would love to write a novel, and I'm sure somebody will, and say it with her, you know, because uh, it would kind of fit that Eleanor Roosevelt sort of thing. But, you know, evidence that it's used... Maybe it was, I don't know. But there are a million other Roman noble women out there, um, and this would definitely date from the time of Antoninus Pius. There's another very famous story in the Gemara in Meila, where Shimba Yochai, second generation Tana, this will put him exactly now in the 130s and 140s, visits Rome, uh, and when he's there, uh, he ends up curing the emperor's daughter of, uh, through some kind of exorcism or something like that. And it's a very interesting story that, uh, here's how the story goes, if I remember correctly. Uh, the Romans say as a reward for curing the emperor's daughter of whatever she had and you know maybe she had some mental thing whatever so uh, you can go into the treasure house and we were there weren't we uh, in Rome not long ago when we did our trip to Italy uh, not far from the Colosseum was a place where they had literally the treasure house where they stored all their decrees and all their goodies and things like that uh, the spaceship built it and uh, you can take whatever you want out of there and that means that Shemuel was allowed to go in. I mean, he could take, uh, I don't know, the menorah out or the parochas or something from the bay. I mean, imagine the incalculable value of all this. It's like a Hasidic tale. Because what he does is 
he sees a decree against the Jews, maybe one of Hadrian's decrees, and he says, this one I want to take home and tear up. And they said, okay. Once again, it's a story about what? The easing up of conditions for the Jews in the wake of the death of Hadrian. You see? So these stories we can date to the degree that we can to the time of Antoninus Pius. These other stories don't work so well. Um, the next emperor after him was uh, the famous Marcus Aurelius. Uh, one of the most famous of the Roman emperors, and uh, uh, is uh, unique in many respects, although overestimated, in my opinion, often, but unique in respect he did because he was a philosopher. Get it? And uh, he was a Stoic philosopher, of all things, and that's very much unlike most of the Roman emperors. You know, he was more Greek in this regard than Roman, although he was 100% Roman from the aristocracy. And Marcus Aurelius is famous for being the emperor for 20 years, and uh, 19 years and uh, 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 publishing or writing uh, uh, one of the classics of philosophy Stoic philosophy called the Meditations which is still around today and published all the time as a, as a favorite with many people and it's really a cool book um, and uh, Stoic philosophy is uh, kind of interesting because it's the opposite of Epicureanism they're not into partying the whole idea is like this what do you need that for? you, know, you have no life unless you uh, smoke what are you smoking for? Uh, what do you have to get a party for? Why do you care what people think about you? Know, no, I'm asking a question about you. Of stories, like you. Why, do you, why does it bother you what people think about you? You can handle anything. It's all up to you. It's a very interesting kind of way. And the kind of person I'm talking about, therefore, is not into luxury because he wants to move past that. He's not into you know, all these fancy... Now, this is not your typical Roman emperor who, I can tell you, did not live an impoverished lifestyle. But Marcus Aurelius uh, sleeps on the floor because he said, like, why not? Get it? What, what, what's your issue? You see, it hurts you can train yourself to anything. Right? You take a cold shower. Why not? Right? It, it, you can do it. Just tell me, you're, so, you're, you're such a slave to your luxury and to your sensitivity. Now, this is very untypical of the Roman emperors, and because it is, um, there are those who say, uh, there are the guys like oh, that's Antoninus, you see. That's the type of guy that would fit very good review to nothing. You follow? It's, it's very intriguing. Look, here's here's a, I'll read you the first page. It's very famous. Uh, Marcus Aurelius writes in the uh, in the uh, what do you call it? In the Meditations, he says, you know, people I owe hakaris atov to, people I owe gratitude to, who taught me important things in life. From my grandfather, I learned good morals and governing my temper. That's important in an emperor. It's important in any of us. From the reputation and the memory of my father, I learned modesty and a manly character. From my mother, I learned piety, was well, a Roman, and beneficence, which is the duchesed, and abstinence not only from evil deeds, but from evil thoughts. And further, simplicity in my way of living, far removed from the habits of the rich. So you have one of those kind of things. This is not your typical Roman emperor. From my great-grandfather, I learned not to go into public schools. In other words, get tutors. You pick up, look, I hate to say it, you pick up a lot of bad habits in school. <laughs> right? Not in Baltimore, of course, but, you know, but, but elsewhere. And to have good teachers at home and to know that this is what people should spend money liberally on. From my governor, meaning my tutor, I learned not to be of the green team or the blue team in the circus. In other words, not to get, into, not to get nuts into sports. Right? A lot of your life gets wasted because you're all the narrow sky, whether the Orioles or the Yankees. 
Oh, don't say that, right? <laughs> you see? Um, he says, this, okay, from him too I learned endurance of labor and to want little and to work with my hands and not to meddle other people's affairs and not to listen to slander. From Diogenes, I learned not to busy myself about trifling things and not to believe magicians and jugglers and incantations and exorcisms, okay? And so on and so forth. From my, what was this? From my grandmother, I learned, I received the impression that my character required improvement. <laughs> did, you, did any of you have a grandmother like that? <laughs> and discipline. And I learned also not to be led astray to sophistic emulation or writing on speculative matters and so on and so on and such and such. And, you know, and he says, from this one I learned I could sleep on a board. And so, so it would be very uh, intriguing and different understandable. You'll find it sometimes from history books. And the arts one, they say, oh, you know, was friends with the Emperor Antoni- uh, Marcus Aurelius. Because since he was the adopted son of Antoninus, his real name was Marcus Aurelius Antoninus Pius. And then, oh, yeah. and then it goes like that. And, uh, and it's kind of cool. And the, and the years would work, wouldn't they? Because if you don't know he was born in 130, so the Marcus Aurelius would become the emperor by the time he's like 25. And then you could already see, because with what other emperor could you have a philosophical conversation? Give me a break. <laughs> right? Who, Tiberius? A Nero? You know, <laughs> Constantine? I mean, you know, these soldiers? Give me a, you know. However, it doesn't work. Uh, I hate to pop, uh, to pop the balloon. The, uh, the facts don't work out. Marcus Aurelius, we know where he was. He spent almost the whole time. Let's go back to the uh, map of the Roman Empire. Here we go. Marcus Aurelius spent almost all of his reign fighting off barbarian invasions all through here, constantly. Okay? Now, it's true, once or maybe twice, he had a, a, a revolt here, so he had to go down and suppress the revolt. So he passed through here once and twice. Um, he spent... His, most of his reign, I'm going somewhere with this, he spent most of his reign uh, battling uh, huge barbarian invasions. Okay? Do we have the next, uh, do we have that piece? Let's, uh, yeah, look at this. This is, I found this on YouTube. This is like a, a simulation of what happened all the time. I mean, this, this is every day. All throughout Germany and all through the Danube area, they're battling the, the barbarians, uh, you know, with, with, with attacks and counterattacks. At first, the Romans got beaten a bunch of times, lost a couple armies, and he had to replenish them in order to pay for it. He had to sell all of his china and his uh, silver. And, you know, it was, it was really rough. And this was typical of what was going on in his time. He doesn't have time to have philosophical conversation with Rabbi Hananasi. Okay? The peoples that you see over here were called, uh, there's even a better point, the peoples you see over here, the great barbarian groups were the Marcomanni and the Quadi in that time. What we would call today the Czechs, the Slovaks, or the Hungarians, whatever. No, I mean it. That's where they're, that's where they're located. And uh, big, huge battles uh, in, in there. He passed through Judea once, and he met a couple of Jews, and according to Amianus Marcellinus, he's like this. He says, boy, these Jews, <laughs> the Marcomanni and the Quadi are almost as bad as the Jews. <laughs> you get what I'm saying? In other words, he didn't have too high opinion of the Jews and being a Greek philosopher, he wouldn't. So it doesn't work so well to say that he was, even though it's very tempting, he didn't hang out for any length of time in Israel to have all these conversations. Now, what do I know? Maybe Rabbi Nasi went and visited him on the Danube. Anything's possible, but it's very unlikely. Uh, believe it or not, the best speculation, if there was any, of who uh, Antoninus is will be a couple emperors later, because he left it, the way it works is like this. Marcus Aurelius, unfortunately, had a son. He left it a son who was a jerk. That was Commodus. After 12 years, Commodus was assassinated. The guy who assassinated was assassinated. Pertinax was assassinated. Then there was a huge bunch of battles between one general and the other. And finally, the bloodiest of the generals 
Septimius Severus grabbed power and he killed all the rivals and he became the uh, emperor for the next couple of years and after him his son Caracalla, who was called Caracalla the Cruel. Um, there are traditions that say that these two guys, although they're pretty vicious and kill people right and left, like Jews. It's interesting. There are inscriptions in certain synagogues in ancient times and church records. Uh, uh, Mepharshim of the fa- church fathers on the book of Daniel. It's kind of interesting. And, uh, they, and, they, and Caracalla was told when he was very young, he had a Jewish boyfriend and, and, and uh, I think somebody whipped him and, uh, you know, and he was real angry at the father of the Jewish uh, boyfriend, things like that. In other words, he, he, he seems to have liked Jews. Um, and sometimes in the Yushalmi he's called uh, Antoninus ben Asuiris, and this would be Severus. So there's there's uh, arguments in favor of that. In which case, Rabbi Yudah Nasi would not have been born in 135. Otherwise, he has to be in his 70s and 80s when he met the emperor. I don't know. Anything's possible. I'm trying to show you once again that if you want to get down to facts, all we know for sure, or all that seems to come out of all this, if you get out of the chronology problem, is there was some guy named Antoninus who was a good Roman. Maybe he was a governor. Maybe he was a general. Maybe he was an emperor. But something good happened to repair or vastly improve the relationships the Jewish people on the one hand, and here I'm speaking about the rabbis, and the Roman authorities on the other hand. That's the bottom line. Some kind of definite improvement occurred in the Roman treatment of the Jews after the death of Hadrian. Partially, as I said before, this was due to old-fashioned imperial policy. If you saw that movie I just showed you before, they're so busy fighting along here all the time, all here, and then the Parthians over here, are you really want to stir up this hornet's nest again? Let's have another Bar Kachor law. That's a great idea. You see, and so based on these kind of notions, a kind of pacification policy towards the Jews, along with the other peoples of the empire, seems to have ensued, and uh, this would be definitely increased after the year 222, when the Iraqis are conquered by the Iranians. Here's Ardashir, the first Iranian emperor. This is like uh, what's Ahmadinejad, you know, uh, the Sasanian Persian Empire, and believe me. From then on, it got really bad for the Romans. They had trouble with the Parthians for a couple hundred years, and then the Persians came along. Oh my God, for the next 400 years, the Persians, every chance they do, try to swallow up the Roman Empire, and they're constantly invading and reaching the Mediterranean, killing and pillaging and all this kind of stuff. And so the Romans really had their hands full at that time, plus they had their hands full on the north with the other barbarians. So it wasn't too much fun to be a Roman emperor during this period. That's what I'm trying to tell you. In that case, um, the Jews are move to the back burner. Uh, people are not so interested or giving so much attention to the Jewish situation, which is good. And finally, I mean, the Jews are the least of the problems of Rome. And uh, partially, and very interesting, it's also due to the fact that it's starting to, to dawn on these dummies in Rome that Jews aren't your threat, it's the Christians. The ones that's picking up the real converts in big numbers is not the Jewish Jews. It's the Christians. The Jews are the ones who insist on circumcision. The Christians don't. The Jews are the ones who insist you've got to keep kosher and Shabbos and all these other things. And Tarot and Mishpacha and who knows what. The Christians don't. And so the ones who are, who are building up following big right and left, who's your real problem, and by the 3rd century, and by the time you get to the 200s, the Romans start to put two and two together, and the Jews appear more and more just to be another quaint little people with some uh, self-important ideas, maybe. Uh, you know, but... Uh, but uh, but, but so what? You understand? So what? Uh, 
I'm sure the Amish think that they're the elect of God and the numbers of earth. So what? You know, doesn't bother, doesn't bother you, you know? So when, when, if you have that kind of sense of proportion, you start to see that a certain kind of modus vivendi starts to work itself out by the time you get to the late 100s and afterwards. And as Caracalo, who I showed you before, uh, gives the Jews civil rights in 212. I mean, he gave Jews and others, but Jews too, a Roman citizenship, which was a privileged uh, um, um, position uh, for many centuries, which was only given out to non-Romans on a very small basis, uh, once in a while. That, that gives you right to a lawyer, uh, habeas corpus, uh, things like that. I mean it. And so, this, and, and Caracalla is sort of like an Abraham Lincoln type business, you know, where, where he, he gives uh, free citizenship to the Jews, which means the Jews are, they may be a little bit weird, and maybe a little self-important, but they're not the Roman citizens. And not only that, but he opens up after him public offices. So Jews can run for mayor, city council, and uh, this sort of thing. And they do. And not only that, after a while, uh, people no longer, and by the time you get to the middle of the 200s and afterwards, people no longer wanted to hold these offices because they're a pain in the neck. You know, they take away from the time you can spend on your business all the rest of it. And we have imperial decrees from over members saying, no, the Jews and the others, they all have to stay at the post. And, you know, the guys run again for mayor and things like this because we need, we need the machinery of, of basic administration to, to keep running. And so more and more of the Jews, of all things, are being integrated totally into the structure of the running of the Roman Empire, at least at the provincial level, which is where a lot of the action happened. And so what I'm trying to show you is, contrary to popular belief, there never was a Roman expulsion of the Jews from Palestine. Let's contrast that. When the first temple was destroyed, and Tisha B'Av is uh, tomorrow night, when the base of Mishra was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, by the time all that's over, with Gedali and so forth, within a couple months, every last Jew was kicked out of Israel. The country was, as the Germans say, Yudenrein. It was free of Jews. And that was what we call the Babylonian exile. It really was an exile. Now let's contrast that. When Titus destroyed the temple second time, as you've seen here, what I've been talking about, uh, plenty of Jews were left in Israel. There were a lot killed, but, but many weren't. Even after the Bar Kokhba rebellion, when a whole lot of Jews, a whole lot of Jews were killed, especially in central Israel, and it may even be that central Israel, Judea as we call it, was depopulated of Jews, more or less. The Galil was not, and went on to do the Mishnah, the Tanoim, the Yerushalmi, the Amoraim. Those were a significant center of Judaism, Jewish culture, all under the Roman Empire. The Romans never did. It's, a, it's a, one of those urban myths, you know. The fallacy, the Romans never did expel or exile the Jews. So if we use the term the Roman exile, and we do, and we talk about Gaulus Edom, the Gauls of Esau, which is always the rabbinical way of talking about the Romans, we don't mean it in the, in the typical sense that they just picked area up and moved somewhere else. We must use it in a more attenuated, more sophisticated sense. And it's kind of a very strange phenomenon in which the Jews live in Israel, but they can't go to Jerusalem. Right? You're there, but you can't touch it. It's, it's an interesting kind of, uh, of notion. But this is the modus vivendi that works itself, works itself out there. Um, and it's very strikingly similar of the times today that you and I live with. Uh, look at this. This is from 67. The, the Jewish soldiers in June of 67, standing in the right of Moscow Omar, even put up an Israeli flag for a few minutes, and things like this. As you know, the Tzahal conquered the Temple Mount, and then, the, and then we didn't. And then we gave back. Because they're afraid. And they're afraid till today. So it's very much like the goal said them. We're there, but you're not there. It's right in front of you, but you can't touch it. It's a funny kind of notion of Gaulus, 
But who says that there's one variation on that subject? Maybe there are multiple variations. In fact, what I'm arguing is there are multiple variations on the concept of goals. Don't be unilinear and think that it means you pick somebody up and exile them you know, from country A to country B. There's various forms, exquisite torture and <laughs> whatever you want to call it in the psychological sense, in which you, know, you can be there and you're not there. Or you can be there and you're, and you're reminded every day that you're not the boss, you're not the bala boss. And these are the times we live in. We're all pained by this, but, you know, this is, well, what's the solution? So that's what emerges as the basic reality of Jewish life in the wake of the Bar Kokhba revolt in the 100s, the 200s, the 300s, 400s, and so forth. You see? And so on the one hand, the Jews are becoming more, uh, what shall I say, integrated into the Roman Empire, but on the other hand, on Roman terms. You can practice your religion, provided your religion doesn't involve physical attempts to rebuild the temple and, and enter Jerusalem. Do something else. Write the Gemara, you know, do something else. You see? And, and that is, of course, what happens. Eretz Yisrael, as I just told you, remains the center of Tanaitic activities after the Bar rebellion for another 80 or 100 years. If Bar ends in the 130s, 135, so uh, think about what I'm about to tell you. When we talk about the Tanoim, the great rabbis who wrote the first layer of the Talmud, uh, the Mishnah, the Tosefta, the Mishalacha, those kind of fundamental works of Judaism, Jewish law, uh, they all lived right at that time. The first generation lived before the Barakov Rebellion. The second generation of Tanaim lived right during and through it. These are people like Reb Meir, uh, Rabbi Huda, Shimon Gamliel, Rechemia. I mean, you know, the people you encounter all the time in these tales. Rabbi Shimon you know, there's a, we, we know more or less the cast of characters. The same 5, 10, 12 people, and, and others, you know, but the f- same 5 and 10 you see most often. And they lived through the 120s, 130s, 140s, all the rest of it. They lived in a time when, when this had to be put back together. I told you last time about Elisha ben Avuya Barachar, who went over to the Romans, and then he didn't. And, others, and then the persecution was over, and he felt a little bit stupid. And you find Rameir trying to bring him back. When does this happen? This happens in the 130s and 140s. You can put, you put a time on it. Um, the integration that I'm talking about is reflected in a very well-known story, I'm sure many of you know it, that Rav Shimon ben Yochai the famous Shimba Yochai, ends up hiding in a cave because he was overheard criticizing Rome. Correct? Mm-hmm. And he cussed him out and all the rest of it. You all know that story, I'm sure. What did his son do for a living? He worked for the Roman police. Isn't that right? He was a detective for Roman police, uh, finger, going after Jewish gangsters. Um, there are no Jewish gangsters today, of course, but 2,000 years ago there were Jewish gangsters. <laughs> and he was criticized for this by others. They said, Chomitz ben Yain, you're vinegar to son of wine, meaning, how can a guy like you work for the Romans, all the rest of it? And there's a whole famous dialogue where he basically made the argument, um, getting rid of a criminal element is, is a good thing, not a bad thing. And, you know, they said, no, you shouldn't cooperate with the police. But this is a debate that will go on forever, even today. What's the story? You find some teacher or whatever abusing somebody. You go to the police, you know the police. It's always a hot-button issue, you see? And so these kind of funny dynamics constitute the Jewish reality in, um, in this period. Um, and then you have the third generation of Tanoim, who are the ones that actually make the Mishnah and some of these other things. Uh, Israel, even in its battered and bloody state, and even deprived of Jewish presence in the center of Israel and confined to the Galilee, still remains in the 100s the hotspot for Judaism, for Torah, in the world. It's interesting. Um, the rabbis, of course, have to react to the suppression of Bar Kokhba catastrophe 
by once again de-emphasizing, I say de-emphasizing messianic politics and concentrating on religion. That's why, as I tried to show you, it's frustrating last week, you don't find things about the Bakok Rebellion, because that is not what they wanted to talk about. Is it? That is not a productive idea if you're living in the 140s and 150s. It's not going to do any good. You see? They may talk about the sad uh, massacres at, uh, you know, at, at, at Beitar, but we're not going into why he thought it was the Mashiach or the rest of it. Keep your big fat mouth shut and just try to survive over here. As Rabbi Yeshua said, it's enough that you stuck your head in the mouth of a lion and you live to tell about it. Uh, they set their goal, clearly, the rabbinic elites, uh, in this generation, to collecting and editing the oral law. And at the beginning, what, what I call the text process of taking what was the Torah Shabbat Peh, so everybody knows the law was in oral form because we're opposed, I repeat, we're opposed to putting it down in any kind of fixed text and doing just that. And that's a process anyone who knows knows that begins with the second generation of Tanas and culminates and crystallizes in the third. Um, th- th- that's why we say, for those who will remember this, Stam Mishnah Rameir, right? which really, which many don't understand, Stam Mishnah mean, means that, uh, I'll tell you what it really means. It means that the original version of the Mishnah that we have today dates to the time of Rameir, meaning he lived at this time in second generation, and then it's re-edited by Behuda Nasi. And Stam Tosef is Rav this, and it's re-edited then. And Stam, you know, Mimicholta is this, and Stam Sifra is this, meaning the process of putting everything down into some kind of a text and turning Judaism into what it is today, a religion of books, commences now in the wake of the Barcoco Rebellion as a kind of rechanneling of the efforts of the people and the best thinkers away from politics, because it ain't going, the Roman Empire ain't going anywhere, my friends. Let's not do this again, into sending up what we would call the Torah Shabbat Peh, the, 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 the Talmud and everything that goes along with that. By the time you get to the next generation, the reign of Marcus Aurelius, in other words, you have the third Generation is called Tanaim. This is the sons of the second. Uh, Rabbi Yudan is the son of Shimon Gamliel, and so and so is the son of Rabbi the son of Rabbi Shimon. You know, the, 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 this elite over there, they're engaged in the final texting, if I could, by fixing the text of significant portions of the oral law. In other words, the energies of the Jewish people turn away from politics and they turn to scholarship. Okay? Uh, is this not the uh, basic thrust of Jewish history for the next uh, 2,000 years, more or less? Right? Isn't that what ends up defining Jewish culture? You ask anybody on the street, what's Jewish culture? You don't automatically think of Bar Kocha. You think of people doing uh, intellectual work, religious or secular. You see? Now, there's a process, as I said before, that assumes front role in Jewish uh, life uh, after this. And they're not happy about what they do to the Torah. They didn't want to do this business of trying to fix it in some kind of a text. But as the Talmud tells it itself, Rabbi Huda Nosson, these others, they said, Ace Lassus Hashem Efer Torah That is an emergency. Their time one has to act for the Lord by breaking some of the laws. Efer Torah They have to be made for, they have to uh, change or violate some of the laws of the Torah. One of the laws of the Torah being don't put the oral law into any kind of a text form, and it says it's got to happen. And of course, they did it. So, what I'm trying to tell you is that just as the destruction of the first temple resulted in the canonization of the written Torah, the, destru- the, the um, destruction of the second temple, and particularly the crushing of the Barakoch Rebellion, ends up in the Talmud. Right? A common book. What was the Bible? A common book held by everybody, same text. That's what the Talmud is. Once upon a time, it was an oral law. Lots of Jews did different things in different ways all over the place, and it was okay. Anyone who's the slightest bit of familiarity with the Talmud knows 
that you'll have debates in the, in the Gemara. Are you allowed to do this on Shabbos? Or you're not allowed to do this on Shabbos? Well, guess what? The one who says you're allowed to do it where he came from, that's what they did. And the one who says you're not, the where he came from, they're not. Do we find in the Gemara Chul, for example, that they argue over whether certain foods are kosher or not? And this one said that it is kosher, and this one not kosher. Well, what does that mean? In some places they held this was okay, and other places they held differently. Now, this is not a chaos. Nobody said you can eat a ham sandwich. Nobody said you can light a, a match on Saturday afternoon. There are certain basics that are out there. Nobody says go buy a chametz something or other in the middle, you know, right after you finish the Seder. But having said that, there's a lot of little details out there which allow for a lot of variation. And we go back to the argument of the centrifugal versus the centripetal, the forces that pull apart versus the forces that hold together. And obviously the reaction to the disasters and the, what we call the goal of Sedum, the disasters of the suppression of Bakok Rebellion are uh, let's try to get more and more uniformity. Let's get the same book, at least. Let's turn this into a, te- to a text. So there's two opinions that are out there that are permitted on the subject of whether this food is kosher, and we're going to paskin, as they say, we're going to rule like this one, and from now on all the Jews should go this way. This is a process of grand uniformitization of Jews, which takes many centuries, and doesn't by no means happen right away in the first or second or third century. It's a process that goes on for many, many centuries, but we know what the train looks like by the time it comes out of the tunnel. You have this uniformed thing called Talmudic Judaism, which, Talmudic Judaism, which is with, with us today. And it was, constitutes the portable fatherland, as Heine puts it, and that's why me, myself, and I, and you also, if you go anywhere in the world, where, 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 no matter what community it is, you come into a, a bunch of Jews, and if they are observant, meaning if they still follow the Talmudic rules, you know what they're going to do on Tisha B'Av, more or less, don't you? Right? The words might not be 100% the same, but there'll be a lot of uniformity even in the words. But you know that it's, not, it's going to be tennis shoes, you know, right? You know, there's going to be fasting, of course. Uh, you know, all, all the sorts of things that, that, that go along with that. And why? I'm living in Baltimore, Maryland. This guy's living in Yemen. That guy's living in, in Mumbai. And whatever, you know, how do they have anything to do about it? They got that same book. There are arguments about what the book means, may well, gee, I'm shocked Jews have arguments, but you know, but but basically, but basically, the, 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 that that is what it, that is the Jewish people's sort of reaction to the suppression of their statehood on a long-term kind of basis. And so, the more time goes on, and Jews realize that Rome is not disappearing soon, the greater the crystallization of the process of creating this portable fatherland, a constitution for the Jewish people, which does enable Jews scattered all over the world to remain a nation in exile something which stumps our enemies and bothers them to no end down to this day. And the second, uh, now by the way, the less people become observant of this stuff, the greater centrifugal force will, occurs, and the less they have to do with one another, and then that disintegrates and the Jewish people fall apart. Right. Correct? I mean, we all know this is the, the central existential crisis of Judaism today. It's true that I can walk into a house in London and celebrate Tisha B'Av. There's another house I can walk into and they're Jewish and never heard of Tisha B'Av. And in Baltimore, Maryland as well. And that is uh, a dangerous business if you're talking about long-term survival of the group. Now, um, in the second century, after the Bakoch Revolt, and listen closely, there's still a Jewish church. Right? There was no Jewish state that was destroyed by the Romans. But the emperors do allow a Jewish church which is a structured religious hierarchy with people at the top giving orders to those at the bottom. On a religious and not a political basis. And this Jewish church reaches its zenith a generation or so after the Bar Kokhba Rebellion, interestingly. Right? 
in the third generation of Tanaim led Rabbi Yudha and his buddy Antoninus, whoever that was. The significance, because it, it, I, I mean, it does matter, but it almost doesn't matter. Whoever this Antoninus was, the, the positive relations, for whatever reason, there are lots of theories, that he enjoyed with Yudha enables, what? The Jewish church to function? The Nasi, as they call him, the head of the Jewish religion. Hear what I said? Head of the Jewish religion. To be operating and rich and powerful, and it is the Jewish church that issues the Mishnah. That's what gives us authority. It wasn't written by one person. That's not the point. The point is that that whole group, the patriarchate, if you wish, the, the, uh, the college of all the rabbis, the Sanhedrin, if that's what it was, said, this is the book. There were other missions out there, without getting too technical, but they have gotten forgotten. And this one is the one that's out there because the Romans allowed us and they were okay with it because the Mishnah had nothing to do with politics. Rabbi Yudha Nasi was very careful, believe me, to stay in good relations with the Roman Emperor. And he was no fool, obviously. And uh, he never pushed the envelope too far. Here, once again, it's a fake. Even though there are stories in the Midrash and in the Gemara that Antonina said, let me be your servant, let me serve you dinner, and things like that, it's also true that I remember this uh, from the, in, in, in all these many Mizrashim I told you about Yaakov and Esau and Parshish told us that uh, uh, how does it go now? This is how it goes. I don't have it in front of me. Rabbi Yudanosi had a secretary, Rabbi Afes, and he wrote him a letter, writing a letter to Antoninus, and it said, you know, from Judah the prince to Antoninus the emperor. And Yudanosi says, no, let's redraft it. To Antoninus the emperor from your humble servant Judah. And he's, and, and uh, uh, he says, uh, why do you abase yourself so much? He says, look at the parish of the week. Komar Avdecho Yaakov. Right? Yaakov found it prudent uh, when he's dealing with Esau uh, not to flaunt any kind of pride. Which, once again, you have to understand the historical import of these stories, which is, you know, he was rich and powerful, all the rest of it, but he was very prudent and very, uh, um, which I say, diplomatic, and he realized the delicateness of his situation, and that sort of epitomizes the, uh, the, the position of Judaism within the Roman Empire uh, after the suppression of the Bar Kokhba rebellion. After the first century, we get the Amoraim, right? The, the, what they call the period of Tamil Shambra, Rabbi Yochan, Reish Lakish, you've heard of people like that, of course, and many others. And so my point is, even in the 200s, 100 years after the Bar Kokhba rebellion ended in such blood, Israel, at least the Galilee, uh, is still a hot spot of Judaism. Except now there are two. One's a Babylonian. Right? Now there are two. One in Iraq. The period of Amorim starts in the 200s, more or less. The 200s, the 300s, and the 400s. And now there's two. That's unusual. We never had that before. Um, they still possess great charismatic religious authority. What do I mean when I say charismatic? They're not the Nazis, necessarily. Somebody Rabbi Yochan. But he's like a Rosh Hashiva, as we would say today. Famous rabbis who, by their charisma, by the force of their personality, command... Uh, huge veneration well beyond the boundaries of Israel and so based on this charismatic authority Israel re- still retains a kind of centrality in uh, Jewish life and it's also true as I told you before that the church continues chugging on throughout the 200s and into the 300s meaning there are Nazis there's the first the second this and that and the other they weren't all the same Madrega all the same level but nevertheless the Roman Empire is okay with some guy calling himself the top Jew and the other Jewish communities, like in places like Rome and Alexandria and elsewhere, send taxes to him, voluntarily, they send taxes to him, and so you've got a state within a state, and uh, provided they're very careful never to overstep the boundaries, 
and there's no mention of Bar Kokhbaism anymore, and there's no question about rebellion against the Roman Empire anymore, not the slightest question. This is sort of like a co-opted elite, you know, in other words, he's, he can do all the religious stuff he wants, provided you keep your nose out of politics, and they do, and provided you don't mess with the status quo, and you don't say, hey, I want to go visit Jerusalem, and let's talk about replacing the temple over here with a Jewish temple, and ever, ever bring that up. Everybody knows it's the elephant on the table. This is what the Jews long for, and what they yearn for. But you know how to say it? That's the rules of the game. It's all said though. You know, get used and they do. And so what I'm trying to show you is not only are the Jews not exiled by the Romans, but Israel for a long time after the Bakoha Rebellion, centuries, continues to be, uh, in many respects, what it always was, the center and the capital of Jewish life for Jews around the world. The Romans do allow this, as I said before. And this lasts for at least a hundred years through what they call the crisis of the third century which means that um, Rome in the 200s started to have a whole string of really dumb, stupid emperors, one after the other. Uh, they, made, they made Tiberius look uh, good. You know, they were real losers, and uh, the Roman Empire couldn't afford that. You saw the borders over there and the constant strain with the invasion of the barbarians, and the bottom line is Rome was collapsing from in, inside. There are Midrashim, if you know how to read them properly, in which you see that some of the rabbis are expecting that Rome's going to go down the tubes and uh, the Mashiach is around the corner and all sort of thing. If you see great nations battling, look for the footsteps of the Messiah. I mean, they said Rome's going down, all that. But it didn't happen. In the late 200s, when the politicians were all idiots one after another, two generals took over. First Aurelian and after Diocletian. They were generals from the army and they were very tough, rough guys. And they fought and crushed all the opposition and beat the barbarians and restored the Roman Empire. Gave it another lethal life. For better or worse, depending on your point of view. Um, but by that time, uh, Diocletian is famous, even Aurelian, but Diocletian is for terribly persecuting the Christians. He is the guy that fed them to the lions. Right? Not the Jews, though. But there is an interesting story about Diocletian. I won't go into it in the rabbi, but it's, it's like a piquant story. Yeah, he, the reason is he had bigger fish to fry. The Jews are not the problem. The Jews are a weird group, right, of which the Roman Empire has plenty. The Christians are really bad news, and Diocletian was right, because after he died, the next big emperor that came along a little bit after him well, was Constantine. Well, you know what that means, right? Uh, I'll tell you what Constantine means. Bad news for the Jews, correct? Because when the Roman Empire and the Constantine switches to Christians, then we're dealing with a different issue, right? It's no longer the Roman Empire with a lot of different gods and religions, and they look at the Jews just as a little nutball group, as I say, with self-importance, all the rest. That's nothing. Now you get the Christians, whose basic definition of themselves is they are the real Jews. And how come the other Jews don't acknowledge them as the Jews? That shows you how bad the Jews are. Right? And they killed Jesus, as you know. You see? And they did all kinds of other things, and the Jews are disgusting. So much so that when they have the Council of Nicaea under Constantine, to decide when the ABCs of Christianity, one of the first things he says is, let's move it from Saturday to Sunday, because we don't want the Jewish Sabbath. By the way, the Jews also say go to Sunday, but you know, but the, but the, uh, that's true, but nevertheless, nevertheless, uh, you start to see the crystallization of what we know of the Christianity, which will have, I mean, from the time of Constantine on, and especially, especially in the Roman Empire, a very pronounced anti-Semitism. Okay? Little by little, they will start to strip away those rights and integrated status that the Jews had attained 
in the wake of the Bar Kokhba rebellion, but before the rise of Christianity. That's when the trouble happens, and they're the ones who uh, mess up Israel. Because Constantine is bad news, he died, I don't remember, in the 330s or something like that, but um, uh, without going into too many details, by the time you get to the 360s, Ariscanus, who's the famous general, he, he uh, gets in an argument with the Jews over something or other, and he kills them all. I mean, uh, you ever hear the Talmud Yerushalmi? Of course you have. How come you don't hear of anybody after the year 363? And the answer is, Ariscanus, who I bet you never heard of, Ariscanus has a campaign, he, killed, he, he, he exterminates the yeshivas. That's the end of the, that's the end of Yerushalmi, baby. You know what I'm saying? It, it's over. And, uh, and he kills all the rabbis. Which, by the way, is the explanation... When you go to Israel, they always wonder. You go to some of these synagogues, and you say, how come they have Zeus and all the pagan symbols on the floor? You know what I'm talking about, right, don't they? And I'm sure the guys tell you this, that, and the other. And, uh, you know, you can imagine what I think of tour guides. The, the, um, the, the, fact, is, the fact is that these uh, things go from the, fourth, from the 5th century, you know, from the 400s and all the rest of them. And there were Jews in Israel, as we'll see them in the Romans. Even the Christians don't kick them out of Israel, but they crush them. And so if there is Judaism, and there is in Judaism, it's a big Amorasesh in Judaism. They don't know anything. There was a lot of syncretism. And the Jews, uh, well-meaning, you know, like a little bit like I was speaking about in Romania this morning. Uh, we were in uh, Washington. So he says, well-meaning, but they pick up a lot of stuff from the neighbors, and you end up with a kind of funny Judaism in which they are quote-unquote Orthodox Jews. And they are, but they don't mind incorporating many pagan motifs into their even synagogue structure. They don't get that there's anything wrong with it. You follow? Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of interesting. But if you don't know the history of that time, you're not going to get it. Now, um, basically, the Jewish uh, Torah is destroyed by Ariscanus, and the Patriarchate is destroyed by Theodosius in the 420s. The Emperor Theodosius abolishes after Rabbi Gamliel, I don't know, the 5th or 6th or something like that. Uh, when, when he dies, uh, the Emperor Theodosius is no more patriarchs, meaning I'm closing down the Jewish church. And between these two guys, between the 360s and the early 400s, Sanhedrin disappears. And that's what we've been going ever since. So the Romans crush the Bar rebellion. They give the Jews 200 years of respite. Then they go after them again under the guise of Christianity. And they break the uh, church in addition to the state. Which really gave the Jewish people an existential crisis. Because they're used to having some kind of authority structure. I know you and I are not, but that's why we've gone through 1700 years without it. Get it? Actually, the definition of Jewish today is no structure. Correct? Whatever rabbi you want. You don't want any rabbi, don't do that either, you know. Uh, who is it? Will Rogers said, I'm not a member of an organized political party, I'm a Democrat, you know. So that's a, so he says, I'm not the member of any organized religion, I'm an Orthodox Jew, you know. The, uh, it's a lot of truth to that, correct? So, and, and, and no one even, could, I mean, could you imagine, there's nothing preventing all the big rabbis of the world today, I mean, nothing politically, preventing the big rabbis of the world today getting together reconstituting Sanhedrin. Ain't never going to happen, right? You're not going to get the Satmar and the Lubavitch and the Israel and the YU and the this and that and the other and they're never going to get in a room. You see? Nothing stopping it. It ain't going to happen. And so, ever since they broke the church in the late 4th century, early 5th century, uh, that part didn't work either. The Jews had to develop a culture sort of uh, organically in which they could operate uniquely among nations and groups and races in which they had to survive as a people with a common culture and a common religion without a state and without a church. I don't know of any other group like that. The other is like the Armenians. They didn't have a state, but they have a church. You get it? The Jews had to do without both, which is, which is kind of interesting that, that we somehow or other we pulled it together in spite of all the imperfections that characterize Jewish life as we know. Uh, that, as I say before, the result of all this is 
that the existence of, of Jews in Israel continues all the way through the Roman Empire, but tenuously, and it ceases to be the capital of the Jewish people, and it will not be the capital of the Jewish people at least for a thousand years. Okay? All throughout the rest of history, uh, in the Middle Ages, uh, the headquarters of Judaism is elsewhere. And for the next couple of years, it's Babel, Babylonia. That's the Babylonian Talmud. And afterwards, you heard of the Gaonim, with the famous yeshivas that were there. That became the place where Judaism has its headquarters. Later in the Middle Ages, you hear of uh, famous scholars. They don't live in Israel. Rashi lived in France. Maimonides lived in Spain and Egypt. And so forth. Correct? You know, Noam Rottenberg lived in Germany. Nobody lives in Israel. Where did Jews in Israel? There are Jews in Israel, but it's, uh, it's a backwater. This is a radical difference in Jewish history, characterized by what we call beginning the late antiquity and beginning of the Middle Ages. And the, as I said before, the action is elsewhere. It's interesting. There will be attempts of Jews later in the uh, Middle Ages, like in the eight, nine hundreds, to try to reassert and say, we're Israeli Jews, everybody should listen to us. And they'll be suppressed by the Babylonian Gaonim, like Asad Yagon and the others. They say, no, that's the old Israel. You guys don't count. You see? The, you know, don't give me any of this. But all this, of course, happens after, long after Bar Kokhba. So I move now to my concluding thoughts. Bar Kokhba, think about what I'm about to tell you. An interesting thing about Kokhba, the most interesting or impressive messianic figure in Jewish history. Now give me a more impressive one. Never claimed to be Mashiach. Now, as far as we know. If you look closely, he says, Rabbi Akiva says Mashiach. It's interesting. Right? You don't hear that this guy stepped forward and said, I'm the man, and give it to me. The way every other false messiah does. Correct? There are guys standing up, uh, I'm sure, when this uh, lecture is over, people stand up and say, I'm the Mashiach. You know, it happens all the time. Okay? And uh, you don't wait for others to put but Koch didn't do this. That's interesting. Um, I say, Rabbi Kiva did. Uh, the Rambam's famous, Maimonides' famous version of Messiah, based on his reading of the Bar Kochla story, still stands today as our most important bulwark against false messiahs. People like Shabtai Tzvi. Because Maimonides, the Rambam, said that he never claimed to be a Mashiach Bar Kochla. Rabbi Kiva thought he was a Mashiach, but there's a reason. Because there's a certain checklist. And somebody has to do things to gain some kind of attraction, some kind of traction as the Mashiach. Who is Bar Kokhba? The Rambam said. Well, he was a Jewish leader. He looked, like, he looked for a while like he's kicking the Romans out. He looked for a while he's capturing Jerusalem and rebuilding the temple. He looked for a while from God. You saw he was concerned in those letters that they found in the Dead Sea Scrolls with Lulav and Esther during Sukkot. You know, he was a good Jew. He was a heroic Judah Maccabee type, as I call it. He, he might have won against the Romans. It could have been. He was going to restore the kingdom of Israel. You saw the coins, Herut Yerushalayim, it says. So he was doing all these things. So it's perfectly understandable that some of the Rabbi Kiva says, oh, that is the Mashiach. So the Rambam then says very famously, you want to claim to be the Messiah? Let's see you do some of the stuff on the checklist. That's already a different story. Then they give you, then they give you uh, Terusim, don't they? They have Shabtai Tzvi. So where is where's the uh, uh, rebuilding of the state of Israel? It's all happening Kabbalistically. <laughs> you understand? It's like Bernie Madoff. You know, it's all happening somewhere else. You see? Uh, and, and every other would-be Messiah. Right? Somebody claims the Messiah or gets followers and say, this guy's the Messiah. There's no problem with it. Do me a Bar Kokhba. You know, let's, let's let's do your stuff. You get the Arabs out of Israel to agree to move? I sign up. Right? 
You, re, you rebuild the temple and you get the Arabs to go along with that, I will shine your shoes. That's it, right? But if you don't, then shut up. Put up a shut up. And so Barakoch emerges in this reading, very interestingly, as a kind of, as I say before, a bulwark figure against false messianism. That's how Rambam reads it. Um, and this is probably the most constructive a legacy, to my mind, of the Barakoch experience. Uh, we Jews have had our share <laughs> of false messiahs, and we're not through with them, I'm sure. Uh, how do you know? The problem when it comes to matters of faith is anybody can fake anybody out. I say, oh, you don't believe me? There's something wrong with you. Uh, oh, you have little faith. How do you separate that out from the phonies? Who are a dime a dozen? And the answer is, well, look at the Barcoco, look at the, you know, Rabbi Kiva didn't pick anybody until the guy did stuff. And se- seemed, at least, to validate, to validate the claim. Um, I think, as I said before, this is, uh, ought to be viewed as the most uh, constructive legacy of the uh, Barcoco experience. Um, we're not sure, till this day, how to deal with Mashiach, Mashiachism, Messianism, as you know, even our time. Uh, it has a big potential, and because of that hope, the Jewish people chug on. So here we are about to do Tisha B'Av. What is Tisha B'Av all about? It's mourning the past, but that only makes sense if you look forward to a restoration in the future. Mm-hmm. Right? Doesn't make any sense to worry about something that happened long ago if you have nothing to do. That's why many, most Jews today don't, have never heard of Tisha B'Av and aren't interested in it. Because they're not interested in restoring a temple or something like that. That's, that's from the old days. And therefore, Tisha B'Av is just not interesting to them. It's not relevant. It's only you keep up the memory if you feel it has some kind of a relevance. If it's just in the past, it's, it's, it's kind of, I, mean, I won't say boring, but it, it becomes the confines only of historical specialists who, as we all know, are a weird lot. And so the result is that it, 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 it goes away from the, the, the public consciousness. Uh, it's interesting in this regard. Um, con- a very uh, complex legacy of the uh, Barcoco Rebellion. So um, I come to the end. As I say, we're, uh, I, I'm purpose structured so we finish the day before uh, Tisha B'Av. Remember, Tisha B'Av commemorates a number of things. One of them is the fall of Betar, which is the Mishnah's way of talking about the Barcoco Rebellion. It was too painful of a subject to talk about the word Bar Kokhba, which doesn't exist in the Jewish literature, as I told you before. They didn't want to mention this because it was just too painful of a... You know, it's not something you want to bring up over there. Um, I'll tell you a famous uh, funny story that they say. I wasn't there, you know. But uh, they, uh, I think it was Rukhaim Brisker, Rukhaim Salvechik. Uh, a, a, a famous story. A uh, hundred and some years ago, was a train in Russia. And... Uh, uh, in front of him was this old Jew, a simple uh, Jew, and uh, two missionaries going to work on him. And they were arguing this, arguing that. And this guy was saying, don't forget me, up. I don't know the answers to this. What about this text? Or what about that text? And he said basically something along the lines, look, I'm no great scholar. I don't claim to be, so you're wasting your time with somebody like me. I know we had our great sages, and if they felt, right, that Jesus was not the Messiah, so they probably knew what they're talking about. Whereupon the guy said, I guess, you see, you make a mistake. What about Barakochi? Then you admit that. Good point, right? And so Rabbi Kiva bet on the wrong horse. No question about that. So you see, they could be wrong. And he was uh, perplexed. So the story goes like this. Where Rokhaim Brisker was sitting behind. In Russia, he had to watch what you say. He'd get in trouble with the police. So he said, he, you know, stuck his nose in and said, I guess, 
Who says the Rebbe Kiva was wrong? How do you know Barakoko is not the Mashiach? Whereupon the missionary said, oh, yes, that's ridiculous. He said, why is it ridiculous? Maybe Barakoko really was the Mashiach. Of course he was not the Mashiach. How do you know he was not the Mashiach? He failed to rebuild the Jewish state. He failed to gather the Jews from all quarters of the earth. And the Romans killed him. He said, that's all I want to hear. <laughs> so there's different ways of interpreting the Barakoko story, as you can see. I conclude, therefore, with the famous uh, formulation of the Rambam, who insisted that this should be one of the Ikram. He's not everybody agrees with this, but the Rambam insists that the belief in the coming Mashiach is one of the Ikram of Judaism, one of the basic principles of Judaism, which is very interesting, meaning if you have no hope for the future of this, then you're not going to be interested in Heshbov, you're also not going to be interested in Shabbos, you're not going to be interested in anything if you follow it through to its logical conclusion. Uh, but it's very famous that the Rambam, of course, said, Ani Mashiach, but I don't get into details. This is the famous Maimonidean formulation. Right? This is actually a, uh, a vulgarization of what the Rambam really says. It's the Animam in the back of the sitter. If you read the actual uh, essay, it's a lot more elaborate and a lot better, uh, which I say, uh, uh, filled out. And there he says like this, he says, every Jew has to believe in the Mashiach, don't go for the details because we don't know them. You understand? Uh, we might get it wrong, we might get it right. Father in there, the Jewish people chug along century after century in spite of all the efforts of our enemies to crush us in because we have a basic idea that Mashiach is coming. He could come tomorrow. If it doesn't come tomorrow, come the next day. Is it going to be, uh, you know, black, blue, green, orange? Is it going to be a Judah Maccabee type of this type or that type or whatever? I don't know. I don't know. I know it's going to happen. And what happens is the will say afterwards, all the people say, oh, I know it all the time. But, you know, they, they, they don't know exactly. And uh, as we stand, as I say before, uh, just before uh, Tishabov, it is uh, painful but uh, appropriate to recall that Hadrian's decree still exists. Hadrian's decree is still in force today. The Jews are not allowed to build a temple in Temple Mount. Okay. The Arabs simply picked up from the Romans when they captured Jerusalem in 640. They said, okay, it's not a church, it's a mosque now. But one thing they all have in common. Uh, the Jews ain't getting to build nothing up there. And I don't see anybody challenging that who's not looking for World War III. And so the Jews say, great, we got the Kotel, or at least we're fighting over that. But think about what I'm saying. The Jews say we have the right to stand in front of the, the outer wall. And even that they're fighting over. You know, the Arabs won't agree with that. I mean, the, the outer wall. Nobody's saying, except a few radicals, let's go on the other side and rebuild the temple. It doesn't look like it's in the realm of reality. And uh, that means that we're in the year 2013, which is what, from the year 135? Quite a long time. And, and Hadrian's rule is, is still there. So it, it behooves us to uh, end this uh, series with the famous words that we end here. We hope the temple will be built speedily in our days. We don't know how, though. We go back to serving as we did long ago. I wish everybody an easy fast. We're done. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.com. Dot rabbi david katz dot com.